once said, Which volume of lore would you like me to retrieve for you? There are currently 24,491 volumes, scrolls, pamphlets, and unbound manuscripts available. Please indicate which one you wish by author, title, subject, or date of acquisition by the Thoracic Monastery. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about the fourth part of the Rise of the Rune Lords adventure path, Fortress of the Stone Giant. So, a quick recap of everything that's been going on. In the first module, the city of Sandpoint was attacked by goblins. In the second module, there was some murders by someone called the Skinsaw Man. In the third module, you went to a fort that was full of ogres, and then you protected people from a dam that was breaking. All that's cool, all that's interesting. How does it all tie together? Well... You battled a stone giant named Barl at the end of that, and it turns out Barl's boss is a stone giant named Mokmurian, who is planning on having a contingent of giants attack Sandpoint. Once again, we will be defending Sandpoint. We already know that that's going to take place. Okay, what what is even the point with Sandpoint? Why would stone giants want to attack this little nothing of a town in the middle of nowhere? Well, in the background, the evil runes lord Karzug has been planning his return, and in order to do that, the stone giant Machmurian, one of his minions, needs to find the rune well. In order to find the rune well, he's going to need to use his magical stone giant talk to rocks ability, and to do that, they're going to need to steal a rock from Sandpoint's lighthouse, which was built from an ancient Thessalonian ruin, and those rocks are going to know the location of that dungeon, which you've already gone into in the very first module of this. But that's not the point. Um, Another point is, the stone giants also need more bodies to brand with the Sahedron rune, because it turns out all those people with Sahedron runes on them, every time they die, the evil rune lord Karzug gets to steal their soul energy, and they need more people to steal soul energy from. And what better way to do that than by kidnapping a bunch of people and branding them with Sahedron runes forcefully against their will. Wow. Okay, so all of this is happening in the background. All the player characters know is that there's going to be a contingent of stone giants. That That's not right. A raid of stone giants. Uh, uh, that's not right. Uh, I don't know. It A, a murder of stone giants? What, John, what, what's the collective group noun of a group of giants? The collective noun for a group of giants is a percussion of giants, according to David Malky, the writer of the webcomic Wondermark. Uh-huh. A percussion. So a group of giants is going to be attacking Sandpoint. There are 12 stone giants, 3 dire bears, their leader, Taractinus, and a dragon. Oh man, that that's a killer encounter. Uh, 13 giants, 3 dire bears, and 1 dragon all attacking at once? How, how are the player characters even expected to fight here? They're not all attacking at once. This is a raid, and the goal of a raid is, of course, to accomplish the goals of the raid. Once again, steal a rock, grab some people, burn the town, run away. So those are their goals, and there's a round-by-round breakdown of how this goes off. It's actually a really cool encounter in that respect, in that it just keeps building and building and building. Now, in the original module, you have a map of Sandpoint. 
which is neat, but not very helpful in actually figuring out the logistics of this. In the Anniversary Edition, they have the same map of Sandpoint, but it's got overlays on it showing round by round where all of the attacks from the Stone Giants take place, starting with the Stone Giants who are too immature to wait for the signal and start attacking the game early, all the way to the very last people to show up, which are, which ones? The Stone Giants on the... Stone Giants looting the Scarnetti Manor on the little outcropping south of town. Right, which you can mostly ignore anyway. Point is, all of these different Stone Giant attacks happen on a round-for-round basis, and the dragon flies a specific path through town, using its breath weapon to burn specific buildings as it goes. The encounter builds on itself. With every few rounds, there's going to be more Stone Giants, more Dire Bears, and more action from this dragon. Now, I figured out that the fastest this encounter can end, because the Stone Giants will run away if too many of them are killed and the dragon or Taractinus, their leader, is defeated. So the earliest it can be finished is right after Longtooth the dragon shows up. If you deal 99 points to him immediately and you've killed every stone giant that's attacked the town so far, that would successfully meet the requirements to make the, all the giants run away, which would mean that Taractinus would just say, oh, forget this, I'm not even going to try and run away without even entering the town. And I want to believe out there there's a group that actually managed to pull that off because that's a really cool move. It's, it's the sort of thing that you'd probably regrind the encounter five or six times if it were a video game just to get that special sequence where Tractinus gives up and runs away. And I'd want to have Tractinus run away if I were playing this. He's a ranger, a, a level two ranger, but he's also a stone giant, and so he has seven melee attacks while he's dual wielding picks. I think the worst part is those dual wielded picks because they have four times critical damage and 1920 critical because of his improved critical ability. So he does have that in the anniversary edition, right? Oh, oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah, super dangerous. That is enough to wipe out a player character in just one or two hits. Very serious threat. This whole raid goes on for, I think it says 25 rounds here. And during that time, the player characters could do something that is often advised against, but might be one of the coolest things they could do. Split the party! Why would we ever want to split the party? In this case, it actually works pretty well because the party is confined to the city of Sandpoint. It's not like they're ever going to have to go further than that. So they're always going to be more or less within communication range of one another and know what's going on and it gives them a better chance of taking on the Stone Giants. However, it does divide up their resources and makes things difficult. Isn't that what they ended up doing in the radio play? Splitting up? Oh yeah, in the radio play the fighter actually goes up to try and fight the Red Dragon on his own and he pulls out the Mask of the Medusa to try and turn him to stone and the dragon goes oh oh boy you messed up and grabs him and flies off yeah, which is pretty much what they're trying to do. Grab prisoners, get the stone, get their butts out of Sandpoint. And that's what they do, if they can. If they're routed, however, that works out well as well. What ends up happening is that the PCs are going to need to get information on what to do next somehow. And the most obvious way to do that is by talking to either a captured or defeated stone giant, either through Speak With Dead or just by, you know, capturing them and forcing them to talk. And from that, you're going to find out that Mokmurian is a 
stone giant leader that's galvanized the usually scattered tribes of the stone giants to retake these lands that they believe to be theirs by right. Moreover, you get to find out where he's stationed. He is in the Valley of the Black Tower in the Iron Peak Mountain Ranges in a place called Jorgenfist. One of the things I really like about Pathfinder's villains is they almost always have a notable backstory. And MacMurian's backstory is that among stone giants, a stone giant coming out as a runt or deformed is usually a sign that they're going to have sorceress power. And this is revered among stone giants. MacMurian came out much shorter than he should. He's actually a large-sized stone giant instead of a huge stone giant. And because of this, the tribe anticipated that he was going to be a sorcerer. Turns out, he just tiny. And that's bad. And he was afraid that he would be exiled from his tribe when it was discovered he wasn't a cool, awesome sorcerer. So he sought forbidden lore and eventually became a wizard. And that ended up spiraling into him killing some people he probably shouldn't have and getting kicked out of his tribe. So he went to the only place where stone giants weren't going to harry and kick the crap out of him. And that's this Jorgenfist, which is a place that's taboo to the stone giants. So, the player characters now need to go to Jorgenfist. So let's go to Jorgenfist. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll just fast travel there, just completely ignore anything along the way. Three encounters. Uh, and they're boring encounters, John. Well, yes. Yes, they are. There's actually, I remember, an Order of the Stick comic that discussed how many random encounters would you have if you had to travel five miles versus 50 miles? And the answer is always one. Random encounters are boring, so we only have one random encounter just to remind us that the wilderness has things in it. And the first encounter is just some ogre cattle rustlers. It's not really anything to write home about. The whole point of it is that it's possible the ogres might get away and warn everybody that you're coming. The second one is the Storval Stairs, which are an ancient monument that's like physically stairs carved into the mountains. And this has some stone giants who like bowl for you first and then finally just fight you. The only thing I like about that one is that all the treasure in it, other than some silver pieces, is cool stuff. There's a mammoth bone statuette and an eye patch with a mock eye made of black star sapphire and a moonstone a mithril anklet and a jeweled crown which if you have the appropriate knowledge skills turns out to be the lost crown of the Pelgreaves dwarf clan and it goes from being a 4,000 gold piece crown to a 10,000 gold piece piece of treasure if you return it to the clan who's grateful for its return. That's actually a spectacular use of the fairly obscure knowledge, nobility, and royalty skill. A lot of times player characters will tend to think of skills like knowledge as just a way of getting lore, and in this case, it actually gets you a tangible 6,000 gold piece reward, which I really like. I like it when those skills end up being useful enough that they can have some real value in the game. And then the last one is a patrol. It's two stone giants and dire bears, and again, the whole point is they have a chance to get to Jorgenfist before you and warn every that you're coming, and that one doesn't even have treasure or anything. I want to take a quick aside here to talk about those skills that player characters usually don't use. A lot of times, fighters and barbarians and player character classes that have low skill numbers usually take intimidate, bluff, perception, just the, the standard ones. But if you have a larger selection, you're, you're going to take some of these weird ones. I actually have a player who his characters have legacy skills to them. Every time he plays, he automatically gains one rank in Knowledge Goblin, Knowledge Engineering, and Knowledge Sludge. Sludge? 
Sludge. Does that come up a lot? Surprisingly often. Well, I guess if you're doing a lot of adventures in sewers and encountering a lot of blobs and stuff like that, I can see where that would... Anyway, anyway. So we get to Jorgenfist. So, into the Valley of the Black Tower is actually a pretty cool section. You approach Jorgenfist Fortress, and you see these encampments set up around the fortress itself. And you see what must be dozens and dozens of giants all waiting to be commanded. You see an army actually formed here. Yeah, it's really an insurmountable uh, thing to actually try to fight all these giants. So the important thing is to get into Jorgenfist quickly, because it's taboo, so most giants won't go in there. Or to find an alternate entrance to Jorgenfist. Fist. Both are options. There are some caverns hidden off to the side that you can use to infiltrate the castle, or you can just force your way through the gates. If you force your way through the gates, as stated before, the giants think it's taboo. They're not going to go inside, so they leave you alone. But there's a couple of interesting encounters regardless of how you do this. If you go down the riverbank, you encounter wyverns and undead spiders that are going to mess you up. Which is just awful and creepy. What's worse than a spider? A spider that's undead. And if you go in through the gates, you're going to encounter harpy monks, which is kind of a weird combination. They come down from the sky and kung fu the crap out of you. Now, if you approach from the very rear of the encampments, you can actually find a cave that is just full of treasure, completely unguarded. That's amazing. Uh, No, actually, it's the dragon's cave. Presumably, you defeated him back in the city, and if you killed him, then yeah, the cave is empty, except for all the treasure just lying around completely unguarded. And if you didn't kill him, but you drove him off, the dragon is waiting here, licking his wounds, feeling really sorry for himself, and kind of resenting the giant that he works for. So what's a disloyal dragon to do? Offer to leave you alone for a share of the treasure. Or, if you're very charismatic and offer him two shares of the treasure, offer to work for you. That's pretty amazing. And one of the things I like about this is... It encourages the DM to give the player characters just as much information about the inside of the fortress as they need. This dragon knows basically what's going on inside. He, he knows that there's caverns underneath, and he's willing to give the player characters that information. He really doesn't like Mockmurian. Or, if the player characters are doing poorly, he knows everything about the caverns underneath and can draw you detailed maps. Or, if you're doing very well, he just leaves you alone and just licks his wounds, you know? There's options for how you decide that you're going to go with this. This is a great opportunity to use that flexibility to serve your campaign the best way it can be served. Speaking of flexibility, if the player characters go in through the gate, there's actually kind of an optional mini boss fight there, which I think is just great personally. The harpies, it turns out, were trained by an undead mummy monk who uh, flies around and, like, karate kicks you all while chained up and holding on to a magical scroll case full of treasure. Uh, Just so you know, this is one of those encounters where, as a player character, it stretches my credibility so far that it snaps, but it's so cool, I do not care. (laughs) Yeah, he is actually all bound up. Like, the illustration of him has him with, like, his feet still bandaged together and his arms chained together, and he's got this scroll case, but he's still doing unarmed strike 
strikes, so you gotta imagine he's, like, floating through the air, like, spinning and spiraling and slapping against you and crap like that. And then he gives you mummy rot and you die. But apparently he met these harpies and was so bored he decided to train them all in kung fu, which is just the coolest backstory. Again, the anniversary edition really, uh, shows its own with this because the original treasure that he carries is just a pile of scrolls, nine of which are just different variations on Bestow Curse. Well, that's kind of boring. Yeah, in the Anniversary Edition, they actually give you a minor artifact, which is a scroll that you open up, and it has one of seven different ancient Thessalonian spells. Or, if you do a a proper arcana check, you can open it up to reveal any spell that you know and just cast it essentially for free out of a scroll that doesn't get used up. And that's pretty amazing and awesome. Eventually the spell DC to resist its maddening effects gets way too high and so you don't want to use it all the time. But it's really, really powerful. Yeah, it's cool to give out a really neat item like that as opposed to just a pile of stuff. And oh yeah, also the thing to bypass one of the bosses later on in the module is there. You get a password that lets you bypass a fight with a shining child, which is like an ineffable evil, possibly from the future. Maybe from when the Thessalonian mages have successfully transformed themselves into beings of pure light. I like to think of it more as the baby thing from the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. I actually really like that, and that is canon if I ever run this, you know? But, uh, no, um, so then beyond that, one of the things that's great about this is that it's not the exact same sort of dungeon crawl that you come to expect, because when you're going into a fortress, what are you thinking of? Well, usually I'm thinking that there's a big castle, and we're gonna have to go up, like, two or three levels, and then maybe there's a a basement that will eventually get down to and possibly just like a sub-basement below that. Nope, there's just a pit and caverns below. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Nowhere to go that's up, so you have to go down. Exactly, and you can either approach it from the side using one of those other caverns or you can approach it from within and come down through the uh, massive pit. Now, what's great about this is that there's actually a lot of variety to these encounters down here. You might think in terms of just giants, and yeah, there's giants Giants to be had, frost giants, hill giants, stone giants, trolls, ogres, all the standard issue giants, uh, almost like a variation on the old uh, against the giants modules. But there's also a few other things down here. Down here, there are Lamias, because the Lamias that have that you've encountered so far all work for Machmurian and have been following his orders. You find some young red dragons, two of them, that have had charm monster cast on them by the Lamias and and you can fight them and kill them, and that's a, that's a hard encounter. They, they flank you and roast you to death with dual flames. Or, if you break their charm monster, they fly away and go attack the Lamias. They're not grateful, though. I mean, they're not going to help you out, but they're happy to kill the people that kind of enslaved them. You know, that's kind of yeah. their deal. And it's actually really interesting. Uh, down here, there's even, there's even kind of a throwaway encounter. There's a lone kobold. Oh, hey, little guy, you're so cute. Lone, lone kobold barbarian level... 
12 that has 20 strength and some pretty massive attacks, as well as a necklace of fireball that they're totally willing to use as a trap and detonate all the fireballs at once in your face. So yeah, Lone Kobold, just a Lone Kobold, which is probably my favorite encounter in this entire thing. Of course, I have a long history of using kobolds inappropriately to harry my player characters, so, you know. The most important thing that's down here, though, is Kana the Wise. She is an elder of the Stone Giant clan that actually tried to cast Machmurian out, and now she's working for him. I mean, that that's an amount of loyalty right there. Opposite of loyalty, actually. He forced her to work for him after he murdered her husband. Uh, apparently, he's completely ungrateful of the fact that she was the only elder that was sticking up for him and trying not to get him exiled from the clan when he got exiled from the clan, which either speaks of her wisdom in recognizing that he was going to go astray and get really bad, or of the frailty of kindness under these circumstances, that sometimes no good deed goes unpunished. And there's actually a kind of a theme of moral and utilitarian ambiguity in Pathfinder. A lot of times villains have had kindness given to them and have chosen to repay that kindness with villainy, or they've been rejected by good society and chosen to become evil, or even offered a second chance by good society and used it to double down on becoming evil. It's an interesting thing that I see a lot in Paizo's work, and I guess what makes me interested in this particular theme is it's uncommon. We tend to think that good reaps good, and sometimes you can throw your pearls before swine all you want, but they're just going to be swine at the end of the day. Kana the Wise, if you talk with her, really does not like Machmurian gathering together all these giant tribes and leading them. She sees nothing but ruin. She is wise, after all. And she will help you out in, well, not necessarily directly defeating Machmurian, but she'll definitely tell you of all the traps and enemies down below. And if Machmurian runs away, she will totally stab him in the back if he's weakened. She is old, but she can't quite take him in a straight-up fight. But if he is hurt, she's still a stone giant. Beyond that, there is the Cauldron of Giant Kind, and this module is the first time you see a rune slave giant. The rune lords, it turns out, used to enslave giants constantly to do their dirty work, and the way they would do this is by killing them and casting their bodies into a giant magical cauldron that would turn them into not undead, but like enslaved giants who have their wills broken and now must obey the rune lords. There is one of these cauldrons in this adventure, and associated with the cauldron is a stone golem along with a stone golem manual, which is a neat treasure because it means that the player characters will be able to make their own stone golem if they so choose or sell it for a massive amount of money. Another great encounter in this area. We've moved on to the ancient library at this point. It's it's the next level down, but it's really really the more ancient and terrifying and old place. And so what do you find in old places? Undead. Specifically, you fight a creature called the Headless Lord. Yeah, it's kind of a template pile-up. At least in the original, it's a male ogre zombie undead lord fighter. In the Anniversary Edition, it's a male fast ogre zombie undead lord fighter six. Okay, even more. But yeah, it's just a massive pileup of templates. Notably, it's headless, which means it can't be decapitated, which really doesn't come up much. But it also gives Machmurian the ability to see through its eyes by looking at its head, which he has in like a gold bird cage. It's kind of a neat, creepy touch. I like it. The center point of the ancient library is, of course, 
the ancient library itself, the Library of Thassalon. You go in there and there are scrolls and books, thousands of them, all covering the walls. You'd have to spend months and months going through them just to get all of the proper information. Or you can fire up the little clockwork guy and he'll help you out. Yeah, there's a clockwork librarian in there who's happy to help you with any research. I mean, he just runs the library. It's his favorite thing. As long as you don't hurt any of the books or cause any trouble or try to steal anything, he's perfectly content to be entirely friendly towards you. He's just a neat little guy, and in the original module, he's technically a human, but he's got the clockwork template. I think they changed him to be like an animated something in the anniversary edition. Yeah, in the anniversary edition, he's just a clockwork servant. Which is cool. It's a construct that isn't just a golem or an animated guardian. It's it's a clockwork servant. It's pretty cool. And it kind of emphasizes the whole magitech sort of thing that Thassalon had always been working with. I mean, that was a big point of Thassalon was that they had magical technology in addition to just magic. There's also, elsewhere in the library, some Hounds of Tindalos. You might recognize that name from H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. The Hounds of Tindalos are from the story of the same title, The Hounds of Tindalos, and they are horrific beings from beyond the stars that are able to transport themselves through corners and angles. You know, they exist in this space where they can interact with space in ways that aren't feasible to beings bound by our simple Euclidean geometry. It's an interesting horror element that just kind of gets dropped in there, and it's kind of a reminder that this is a fantasy kitchen sink setting where basically anything from any fantasy setting can be kind of slid in gently under the right circumstances and in the right place. So finally, you reach Machmurian's lair. You open the doors and there he is, seated on his throne. And you get to charge into battle against... Oh, right, he's a wizard. And so he casts Solid Fog and Cloud Kill and all sorts of horrible spells to keep you at range. And he keeps peppering you with spells. And if you do get up to him, he's going to use Telekinesis to throw you back into the spells. It's kind of a hectic fight. It's a really good fight, though. Once you get him down to... 40 hit points or so, he starts trying to find his allies, which presumably you've killed up till now. So eventually, he'll come back to Kana and her people and try to recruit them to fight you. And as soon as there's an opportunity where he's with Kana's people and you confront him, Kana turns on him and all the stone giants just start kicking the crap out of him and he's pretty much doomed at that point. So if you kill him, you get a great pile of treasure. But if you drop him to below 30 hit points without killing him in one big blow, he actually has a scroll of limited wish which I really, really want as a piece of treasure. But if he's still alive, he's going to use it to teleport away. And I mean, he's going to go away and now he's going to come back later in the module and... Actually, no. His boss is going to stop him from being able to teleport away and is going to kill him on the spot. But first, he's going to use him as a conduit to give you a little speech about how everything you're doing is working directly into his evil plan and there's nothing you can do to stop him and he's going to squish you like worms, which is kind of one of those, oh crap, there's a big 
bigger enemy out there moments. I mean, maybe you've expected that this guy is an important fellow or whatever, but this is probably the first time that you recognize that this dude specifically is a problem. I mean, there was a reference to Karzug in a previous module, the voice on Thistletop in the uh, very first module. That might have given you an idea, but this is a callback that's strong enough that you're like finally connecting the dots and saying, oh, this is the boss. This is the big guy. Overall, that concludes the module. You have this great fight, the armies of the giants disperse, and you once again are heroes. Plus, you're in an ancient library that you can use to research the new final boss. Overall, I like two major parts of this module. The raid on Sandpoint and the final dungeon. Everything in between feels like so much filler, but those two parts are so strong and I love it so, so much. One thing that was really disappointing about the overland travel portion is that if you read Paizo's other adventure paths where outdoor exploration is a major theme, the encounters tend to be really good. They do a great job of having a lot going for them and having an interesting setup, interesting events, and a satisfying conclusion, whereas these are just, we drop some monsters here, fight. I don't like that. It's kind of disappointing. The treasure is really the high point of that entire thing with everything else just feeling like, oh yeah, here's some more enemies, fight. And when you contrast that against their other work, it's a little bit of a disappointment. But by and large, I feel that the module is really strong and does a good job of keeping the player characters focused on novel situations and approaching things from interesting angles. Up next, we have the fifth module, Sins of the Saviors. Once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. So these are the heroes of the age. More like gasping worms to me. Worms to be crushed back into the earth when I awaken the armies of Zin Shalast. When the name Karzug again, spoken with fear and awe, know that the deaths of those marked by the Sahedrin, the giants you've so conveniently slain for me, hasten my return, just as yours soon will. Fools, all of you, is this all you could manage in ten thousand years? The Rune Lord of Greed, Karzug. Save vs. Rant is a tabletop gamers guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.